Hi. Hi. Glad to see you came back. Um, we have covered a lot of ground over the last several weeks, and um, I don't know what the past, you know, three or four months have been like for you. Um, but we, you know, we started out by talking about how we seek God's will, how we find uh, a vision, both, you know, individually and as a church. We introduced you to uh, the vision and values that we as a leadership have developed for you. Uh, it starts with our, uh, our vision statement, which says, we believe that the love of God in Jesus changes everything. And we have, we have four values that we want to uh, uh, uphold that we believe is going to help us accomplish this. And so we believe that um, the first value is belong, that Jesus changes the way we experience community. The second value is grow. Jesus changes the way we see ourselves. The third is give. Jesus changes the way we respond to others. And the fourth is go. Jesus changes our understanding of what others need. Um, so we've, we've been going through all of this, and we've asked you to do some really important things along the way. We've asked you to pray uh, for the leadership. We've asked you to pray about yourselves, to pray, uh, you know, God, what is it you want to change in me? God, what is it you want to change in us as a church? We talked through our methodology, how we think we're going to, or how we're going to go about uh, setting all this up and doing the things that God wants us to do. We're going to pray. We're going to, what's number two? Wait. We're going to, number three, listen, and then we will do. And we are in the middle of that, uh, of that process right now. We are still praying. And tonight, uh, one of the reasons why it's so important for you to come tonight is, number one, it's just, it's great to spend an hour together in prayer and encouraging one another. Uh, but tonight we are praying about our first value. In our first meeting, we prayed about our vision statement. Tonight we are praying about our belong value and that God would give us uh, a vision and, and, and to help us understand how this should go. But here on Sunday mornings, we are going to switch gears and we are going to go back to the story. Um, for those of you who haven't been here, we're going to tell you a little bit about what that is. Um, the story uh, we have been telling, though, uh, this is, hang, hang with me here. The story we have been telling over the last several weeks, the story we have been experiencing over the last several months, these things that we have had to talk about and do, the prayers we've had to pray, the life experiences we have had to go through, this whole story is not a story that is unique to us. It is actually just a story that we are taking part in. Um, we spent 23 weeks this year going through uh, the first part of the story, and we are going to move on to the next part of the story. But before we do that, we are going to uh, have a little bit of review. Um, the story encourages us to look at the Bible as one big overarching story, to recognize the themes in the story, and to see ourselves in the story. Um, and I have to say, and, and maybe you can identify 
with this in a different way now, but I identify with the story in a way that is different than I did four or five months ago. I really do. Um, I identify with the whole thing and everything that's going on in a way that was uh, not quite as tangible to me then as it is now. Um, and, it, and it is part of why I shared with you um, the things that I've been going through over the last couple of weeks. Because I think, and I could be wrong about this, but I think that now more than ever, as we review the story, you are going to see very clearly what has been going on in your life and the life of us as a church as things repeat themselves and sort of come back up again and again. But understanding the Bible is one big story requires us to approach Scripture in a slightly different way. Uh, when we typically read Scripture, we are usually looking for some sort of ruling on something. Um, should I do this? Should I not do that? Can I do this? Or am I not supposed to do that? God, what should I do and where should I go? And this is, of course, something that is very true about Scripture. It is a guide for our lives, but this mindset in terms of how we approach it and what we allow ourselves to see in and read greatly uh, limits what we can sometimes get from a story if we're simply looking for advice or something to do. Uh, But the Bible is a story. And I think we may be uncomfortable with calling it a story because we know that the Bible is more than a story. And somehow when we say the Bible is a story, it almost makes it sound like it's not true, that it's not real. Uh, But it is very much a story. The The Bible has characters. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has a plot that's carried through All the way, there are problems and there are resolutions. There are all things that happen in the Bible that happen in lots and lots of stories. Our task is to recognize what is going on in the story, how it moves forward, and most importantly, what the story is about. We've covered all this ground, I know. I just wanted to say it again because, you know, this was like 40 weeks ago, okay? Um, And so I am going to do what preachers dare not do. And it's not talk for 20 minutes. I am going to review the content of 23 sermons. And if you're worried that I don't have enough material, I had 250 pages of notes from which to work. It's It's true. Uh, lunch will be served sometime around two. Um, dinner will happen after the prayer meeting. I hope you brought sleeping bags because we're going to be here a while. So I basically, I kind of broke it down into different sections. And what we are looking for from these sections, okay, is we are looking for not just what happened, okay? I, I don't want to just stand here and tell you what happened. So we're not just looking for what happened. We are looking for um, sort of the heart of each area. What is the what is the important thing that really sort of defines what that area is about, and what are who are the people that were involved, and more importantly, what are the patterns that we see? What is the story telling us at that point? So I got really creative for the first section, and the first section is called beginnings uh, because it's. It's at the start. I could have just said we start here, but 
Instead, I decided to call it Beginnings. First off, all the major characters of the story are introduced in the first chapters of the story. They are God, mankind, which is one unpleasant lump we find, and the tempter, who we would also call uh, him Satan or the evil one. Now, the story is about the relationship between God and mankind. This is really the heart of where the story takes place. The tempter, however, is a major player in this relationship and therefore is important to the story. It is also important to understand that the tempter, Satan, is clearly the enemy. Now, uh, just to give you a little heads up, I should have said this earlier. Uh, this is, oh, that's not it. There was a different slide. Is, okay, never mind. There was a different slide this morning that just said uh, the story so far, but uh, we don't have, I don't have any scriptures to point you to today. Um, there are no slides. There's nothing on. I just want you to engage in, in what it is that we're doing today. Okay, so in any good story, right, you need to have the good guy, you need to have the bad guy, and you need to have something happening in between them. You know, if you read a, a story about, let's just say, a terrorist attack or a bombing of some kind, you've got the good cop over here who's trying to figure out everything that's going on, you've got the bomber over here who's going to cause havoc and destruction, but what's in the middle? The subjects, right? The people that the cop is trying to save and that the bomber is trying to blow up. And we see this here in the story, which is why we have these three main groups, God, mankind, and the tempter. Satan is clearly the enemy. God is clearly the hero. And mankind, or mankind is clearly somewhere in the middle, right? But the story, again, is about the relationship between God and mankind. So what is God's goal in the story? What does he want more than anything else in the story? Well, we, we find out about it in creation, right? What happens in the creation story in Genesis chapter 1? God from a great distance away. A God who is before all, above all things. He lovingly creates the world and and he spoke everything into existence except for mankind, humanity. Instead, Genesis chapter 2 tells us that God got down. I imagine he gets down on his hands and knees. He gets down on his hands and knees. He forms us out of the clay. And then what does he do? He breathes life into us. So humanity is different than everything else that exists within creation. And it is created, we find out very quickly, to be in relationship with God. God created humanity to be in relationship with him. So this is what God wants. But there is a bad guy. And what does the bad guy want? The bad guy, his goal is to break the relationship between God and mankind. Now, when does let, let's let's take a let's take a brief look at this here. We've said that God's goal is to have a relationship with mankind, and the enemy's goal is to break up the relationship 
with mankind, between mankind and God. When does that stop being the story? All right. When did we discover this? Right off the bat. Okay. But this, this is the core of the story. Um, and so here's what we find. God has an intimate relationship with humanity, with Adam and Eve, but under the influence of the evil one, man rebelled and chose to disobey God. Okay? Now, we need to look at this really quickly for a moment because the core of how this happens is also a part of the story from the very beginning until now. When Adam and Eve were living in perfect unity with God, the tempter approached them with a lie. Does this sound familiar? Yes. The tempter approached them with a lie, and the lie was this. God has lied to you. You won't die if you eat this. Instead, you will, when you eat this fruit, become like him. Okay, So we learn a couple of things that are very important right here. Number one, Satan tries to convince us that God is lying to us. And Satan tries to convince us that God doesn't actually have our best interests at heart. Satan tries to convince us, in fact, that God is attempting to hold us back. Do you see it? God is trying to hold us back. And then to make sure that Adam and Eve go through with this thing, he throws this cherry on top, which becomes a signature characteristic of humanity. You can be God. You don't need him. You can be God. God has lied to you. And if you do this, you will be like him. So they, they believed the lie. They ate from the one tree they were not supposed to. Which, looking back on it, I kind of think God was trying to protect us by telling us not to eat from this tree. But that's a discussion for another time. And when they did this, when they bought the lie, and they were looking to elevate themselves to the place of God, they forever altered the relationship that God wanted to have with humanity. Now, is this the first time that humanity did this? Yeah. Pretty early on in the story. Was it the last time? No. No. Okay? So here's what's established from the very beginning. Satan convinces us that God is lying to us, that God doesn't have our best interests at heart, when really Satan is the one who is on the attack. And then he convinces us that either ourselves or something else should be put in the place of God because we don't really need him to be there. This was not an isolated incident. By Genesis 6, man had moved so far away from God that God actually thought to myself, I wish I had never done this to himself. And, and even after restoration and repopulation, humanity tried to build a tower to reach God so that they could be on equal level with him. 
And, and this is something that humanity goes after time and time again. This, we don't need God, and then putting something else, themselves or something else, in his place. Which tells us something fundamental about humanity, doesn't it? If this is a pattern that we see repeated multiple times by Genesis 10, what do we know about humanity? When given the choice, humanity will most often choose something other than God, particularly if it elevates themselves. And secondly, we buy into the lies of the evil one. Because the lies that the evil one tells us are really good lies. He is also what? The tempter. Which means he knows what our weaknesses are. So he's not just going to lie to us and tempt us with something that is going to have no effect. Because that does nothing for his goal. What is his goal? To break up the relationship between God and man. So God now is standing back and he's seeing all of this. He's seeing Adam and Eve listen to the lies. He's seeing the whole world move away from him in the time of Noah. He's seeing humanity after the restoration come back. And, and God has to act on these things. God cannot pretend that, human, that humanity is just doing their own thing, right? He can't pretend like it doesn't matter to him because he is God, they believe he's a liar, and they're putting other things in his place. Like, this is not how this is supposed to work between God and these people that he loves. And so God must be true to himself and he must bring justice to the situation. If you commit some sort of action against God, it matters. It ma it, and if God does nothing about it, then what? It doesn't matter. So God has to bring justice to the situation to show that he is God. So Adam and Eve are sent from the garden. The whole world is destroyed, but Noah and his family. As these people are trying to reach God, he confuses them and sends them out into all the earth speaking different languages. But God's deep desire has not changed. He still wants relationship with humanity, and it is the cry of his heart. So God decides, okay, it's not really working very well. We've tried to start over, and the whole earth just doesn't seem to want him. Okay, that, that's a fair statement, right? He's trying to get the whole earth to see him as God, and the whole earth is not seeing him as God. So what does God decide to do? Well, he's already promised he's not going to wipe everybody out again. So instead, he combs the earth. For someone who will do three simple things. You may remember what the three simple things are. He wants someone who will hear his voice, will listen to what he says, and will follow him wherever he goes. That didn't seem like a lot. But we have to think about the background here, right? 
Satan doesn't want this to happen, so he's going to attack. Humanity has a tendency to believe the lies and to choose something other than God and to put those things into God's place. And so, he looks over the earth, God does, and he finally finds someone that he believes can make this work. He decided to start over with a small group, a family. But we can't overlook the emotional baggage that drove him to this decision. He had tried desperately for a relationship, and it had not worked. He had to be hurt and frustrated, and so here he is starting over again. This is, this is like the third start for him. And he would not destroy the population, but he's, he wants to have, God wants to have a people that would be in relationship with him where he would be their God and they would be his people and they can live together with God leading them and guiding them and pouring out blessings upon them. But God is not stupid, so there are some things he knows about humanity at this point. He has to know this. This is Genesis chapter 12, by the way. There are things he has to know at this point. Number one, he can't really trust us. There are limitations at play here, but he still wants us to be his. Number two, but as has been true from the beginning, he is willing to give in return. So even though he is hurt, he is willing to continue to try to be God in a way that works. So God started the long process of creating his own people by calling Abram and Sarai. And in Abram, God was looking for someone very specific, again, someone who would hear, listen, and follow. But he had a specific goal in mind for them, okay? A very specific goal. Number one, they were to be his alone. There were to be no other gods before him. We take this idea for granted, but in the time of Abraham, there was not a, a, a place of people that just worshipped one god. Everybody had multiple gods. And so God is saying, here is something that is going to make you different. You are not going to worship other gods. You are going to worship me. And me alone. Secondly, you need to follow me wherever I may take you. He literally asked them to just get up and go. He would tell them where to go, but they had to take the first step and follow them and follow him. And he also didn't tell them how he was going to accomplish anything. He just said, I will accomplish these things. We marvel at Abraham's response to all this, and Sarah's as well, but it distracts us from how crucial these ground rules are for God. Why are these ground rules so crucial for God? Because he's tired of trying to build a relationship who won't do the most basic things. With people who won't do the most who are looking for other gods and who won't listen to him and follow him. So this is what he asks from them. Let me be your God. Hear my voice. Follow me. I will accomplish things. And in return, God made a covenant with Abraham, a promise to him. 
God's promise was that Abram and Sarai would be made into a great nation. They would have more descendants than the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. They would be a blessing to the earth. He would give them all they needed and they would be his. Now, if we were writing this story at this point, what would happen next? If we were writing the story, what's that? Like immediately. He would high five her on the way back into the tent and boom, she has conceived. Right? This is how we would write the story. We would make things happen. Things would be obvious. Abraham and Sarah would have this super clear path. And somehow Sarah would birth a nation. Poor Sarah would birth a nation. Okay? This is how we would write this story. Um, But that's not really how it happens. Instead we see that the road to becoming the people of God was not really an easy road. In fact, it was a struggle much of the way. And I want to propose that there are two basic reasons for this. There's a lot of reasons why it was a struggle along the way, but there are two basic reasons for why it was a struggle along the way to becoming the people of God. And the first one is this. You're not going to like this. But the first one is this. God didn't make it easy. Period. God did not make it easy. Now, the question is, maybe, well, why didn't he? And isn't the, don't we ask these questions so often? Why didn't God blah, blah, blah? Why hasn't he blah, blah, blah? I'm, those are words, actually, but I'm just blah, blah, blahing for now. Why hasn't he done these things? Why didn't God make it easy? Well, What's the one thing he wants? To have a relationship with humanity. And what has humanity proved? We're not so great. And so he doesn't make the road easy. Instead, he makes it hard. Why does God make it hard? Because he doesn't want us to choose him once and have everything work out. He wants us to choose him this morning, this afternoon, tonight, in every moment, in every challenge, in every positive, in every negative, in everything. He is desperate for someone to stand up and say, you are my God, we are your people. So, the road is not easy. The road is not easy. And if you think about it, you can see where all of the bumps are. And in his defense, church, God had already tried the I'll make it easy approach. Twice. And it didn't work. So he promised that Abraham and Sarah would have a child, but they did not have Isaac until they were 100 years old, and then he asked them to kill Isaac. Uh, It took multiple generations for the family to grow at all, and God chose to fulfill his promise through Jacob, who was kind of a liar and a cheat. At best, we can call him shifty. But Jacob had to be transformed into Israel before he could take hold 
of the promises of God. Joseph was sold into slavery, put in prison unjustly and forgotten there. But through all of that, God kept his promise and saved the known world from famine. And when Joseph and his family actually become a nation and are turned into slaves, God comes on the scene again and delivered his people from the greatest nation on earth at the time and had them then, he brings them out, he's going to take them to their place and they wander forever. And then they mess up and they wander longer. It was not easy, but there were constants through all of those stories and all of those moments. Number one, if they stuck to God, then what happened? Blessing. No question. If they walked away from God, what happened? Disaster, right? Just if they walked away from God, it, it all broke up. Um, so th- that was the first thing. God didn't make it easy, but the second thing, and we have to give due credit to this, those he called were often distracted or just downright dummies along the way. We see a pattern repeat itself. The people would find great success with God at their head, but then they would forget about God and about what he had done. The people would forget about him. So God would give them over to their enemies or they would experience failure or they would have discipline in some sort of way. And the people would live like this for a while and then they would finally say, wait a second, where is God? God, why aren't you fixing this for me? Come and deliver me. And so God would raise up someone, maybe it was a judge, maybe it was Joseph, maybe it was a leader, Moses. Moses, Joshua, these people, he would raise these people up and, and, and they would listen to God and try to bring these people along and relationship would be restored until they forgot and the whole cycle starts over again. And not to oversimplify but this happens over and 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 over again. You see it play out in the judges the most. It's the most, um, this is exactly what's happening in the judges. But it happens over and over and over again. God delivered the people from Egypt, but they made a golden calf. They decide to go back to Egypt because they had spent too long in the wilderness, so they wander. They go to the promised land and they start worshiping other gods. They take, This is fascinating, church, okay? They take everything that makes them distinct as the people of God and they trade it for something else. Everything that makes them distinct as the people of God, they trade it for something else. Why? We want to be just like everyone else. They have a king. Why can't we have a king? They have a capital city. Why can't we have a capital city? They have huge temples. Why can't we have a huge temple? We want to be as powerful as we have seen everyone else be. And in their pursuit to become like everyone else, they are willing to give up what it is that makes them distinct. 
that they are the children of the one true God who is above all of those things. He's above the things. So here's one of the last trends that I think we see in the story. And this one is troubling, but it's true. Um, God will not force himself upon his people. He will not, he is beyond trying to make someone understand he's God. It would be like getting in an argument with a toddler over whether this folder is green. Don't you dare bring colorblindness into it because that is not within the realm of this illustration. The toddler can see it's green, knows it's green, but says that the folder is any other color but green. God will not make someone believe in him. Now, this is a question that is still asked today. It gets back to the why doesn't God make it easy? Why doesn't God make it obvious then? Why doesn't God make it obvious? Why doesn't he just show? Why doesn't he just do? How much more obvious does God have to make it? Where a group of villagers become the most feared army in the land. Where the king of the world at the time experienced the backlash of the earth. Where rivers turned to blood, where insects of all kinds came over, where they were physically affected. They had success every time they stuck with God and they always forgot about him. And what, 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 what did God decide to do? Well, I can't make you choose me. I can't make you, I, I will give you what you need, but I can't make you choose me. And if they are going to choose someone besides me, then they're just going to have to deal with what happens when they do that. And this is how the rest of the story plays out. And honestly, it's kind of painful to read. When they put God in the place he deserves, they have great success as a nation. When they forget about him, and not only forget about him, but start to follow other gods, gods that look like animals, gods that are tree, trees cut down and a pole stuck in the ground, gods, the most ridiculous things. When they do those things, when they follow those things, God has to be who he is and he has to bring justice in the situation. Because what? You can't just put something else in the place of God and have nothing happen because of it. There are consequences to these choices. And so God allows whatever is going to happen to happen based on the choices that they make. When they forget about him and follow other gods, he lets the fallout happen. That could be bad enough. And it could be the place where everything could just stop because at this point in the story, and remember, we 23 weeks. Two, three. 
at this point in the story, we have, if we identify with God at all as a character, we are done with these people. We're done. And here is what is so remarkable about the story that we are reading. God, of his own choice, being true to who he is, never gave up. Uh, He let things happen. He let people make choices. He gave them the world and then watched them throw it away. He bailed them out time and time again. But God never gave up. He never stopped believing, and this is crucial. He never stopped believing that the relationship he wanted with us was worth fighting for. He was still looking for people to hear and listen and follow. And he never closed himself off to the receptive heart that would cry from exile and say, God, please come back. And God was ready. He sent messengers constantly in the way of the prophets to speak the truth to the people and to call them back. He used foreign kings to help both protect his people in exile and to pay for, I just love this one still, this still gets to me, to pay for the rebuilding of the temple and the wall around the city. And he spoke through the prophets of one who was to come, one who would bring something different than the earth had ever seen. It seems like not a lot has changed since the time of the story. Fortunately, you know, if we just kind of look at it objectively, it seems like not a lot has changed, right? God still wants to have a relationship with us. Satan still attacks us. And he gives us the lies, the same lies, the same lies that I bought into, Right? He brings the same lies. God is lying to you. He's holding you back. He's not giving you what you really need. And then he tells us to elevate ourselves. Well, fine, God, I don't need you. Fine, God, I don't want you. Fine. I don't need it. That is his goal. And we are the people in the middle. These people that go this way and that way. Sometimes we're fooled, sometimes we're not. Sometimes we fight well and other times we don't. Other times we don't. But there is still this pull on us. Will we be gods or will we not? The story sounds like it's still the same, except it is fundamentally different for us. It could not be any more different for us than it was for all those people who were gods and then weren't God and then were gods and then weren't gods and then were and then weren't. Because 
Instead of washing his hands of the whole human experiment, God saw all the patterns, he saw our tendencies, and he knew that we would not be able to overcome this on our own. Our nature was too easily persuaded. The evil one was too effective. And now, instead of having a world that's his, his people are going to live in parts of the world that do not belong to him anymore and where people will not acknowledge him. And God sees all of this, and instead of saying, you know what, it was a good run, instead of saying that, he sent his son to this place. And his son changed the story forever. He changed the story forever. And all of a sudden, those things that were so big, that were so big, become so insignificant in the face of a redeeming Savior. And the power of the evil one to push us around is defeated. And God is going to have what he wants on eternity with his people where they know he is God and there is no other. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this story and we are grateful that we get to be a part of it. We see ourselves as those people in the middle, the people that are swayed one way and the next. God, we see the lies that we've been told, the things that we hear, the way that we are pushed. God, we recognize the way that we have put other things in your place. But Father, we thank you for rewriting the end of the story. For God, we cannot overcome on our own. We cannot be the people that you deserve. But this is what true love says, God. That you don't worry about us becoming the people you deserve. Instead, you show yourself as a God of grace and of redemption who overcomes for us, giving us what we don't deserve. You are the hero of this story. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have any needs this morning for prayer and encouragement, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.